There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, welcome to Warrior U. Join retired Special Forces Officer Bram Connolly as he explores resilience, mental toughness, high-performing habits, and other aspects that are required to develop a warrior mindset. Warrior U, it's the performance edge. Hey everyone, it's Bram Connolly here retired Special Forces Operator and Officer with over 20 years in the Australian Army. Just before we launch into today's show, I want to tell you a little bit about the Warrior U program that forms the basis of the Warrior U website. The program has been designed to help anyone aspiring to join the Australian Defence Force. There's a tailored fitness program based on simple movements that ensures you get from zero to hero in the time frame that you have available. There's lessons on military skills and culture, lessons are self-paced, and there are quizzes to help reinforce the learning. Some of the topics include weapon types, navigation theory, survival, and there's fieldcraft lessons too, just to name a few. There's also a mental resilience block of training. The main aspect of the program though is the access to mentors who've either held positions within the Defence Force recruiting or recruit or officer instructors and even some Special Forces selection staff. So no matter what you want to do in the ADF, we have a mentor to assist and provide advice. Check out the website on www warrioru.com.au That's warrior and the letter U. Now, to introduce today's sponsor and then our guest. This week's episode is sponsored by my good mates across at Ringers Western. The Ringers Western brand was born back in 2012. It was cooked up on a rugged cattle station out in the Kimberley. They provide a dependable product with their focus firmly set on a quality clothing feel. So go and check out their website and throw them some support. All right, let's get on with today's show. Dr. Amantha Imber. Welcome to the Warrior You podcast. Thanks for having me. It it took me so long to be able to get my tongue around your name, Amantha. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I, it's, a, it's a bit of a weird one. Yeah, my mum's a bit of a creative, um, creative person. She she made it up at birth for me. I get the same thing with with Bram all the time. People call me Graham or or Graham or Brad or stuff like that. So. Yeah, and I think it wasn't until I wrote your name out that I went, oh, I get it. Um, <laughs> so you're an organisational psychologist? Yeah, that's right. That's the right. the yes. CEO of Inventium. Mm-hmm. And the thing I love about you the most is that you're obsessed with optimization. <laughs> yes, definitely, definitely. Yes, I, I talk all about it in, um, in, in my podcast, How I Work. So straight off the bat, what's the most important life hack? That you've ever learned. There you go. Oh, most important life hack. Um, I, I got to say, reading Deep Work by Cal Newport probably oh nearly two years ago um, really changed things for me. It completely changed how I structure my days. So, um, you know, re- really for the last sort of two or so years, I I spend my mornings really differently. So I'm a lark if we're talking about chronotypes. I I'm really firing in the mornings and so generally I stay out of anything digitally distracting from the emails to phone messages um, to social media, not that I'm a big one on social media, 
and I just spend time doing tasks that require heavy duty thinking. And that's, um, that's just been a huge game changer for me. You obviously read that book, put that into your everyday life, into your podcast, I would assume into some of the solutions that you provided people through Inventium and paid it forward because I, I heard that podcast when you first mentioned it. And so have, have also, I now do the deep dive list and the shallow dive list. And mm. rather than come up with sort of um, a weekly agenda, I have a, a month that I use on a Dropbox project and, and have lists of what's deep dive and what's not. So that when I'm feeling you know uncreative, which is often, and usually when I've received crappy emails or um, Instagram messages, then I'll go onto the shallow dive and just do the easy things like, you know, the GIO insurance and ordering new T-shirts from Rogue Fitness or, or um, <laughs> you know, all the easy stuff or responding to people's emails and things. But then when I'm actually working on, you know, a project that's of any real substance, like a writing project, whether that be a book or whatever, then I'll, then I'll start doing deep dive tasks. And I would have allocated time for that in my day. Yeah. Mm. I, I, I got to say like for me, splitting my to-do list had such a big impact on just making it easier to make decisions that were going to serve me as opposed to decisions mm. that are not going to serve me. So I, I spent a year a little while ago, probably trying out maybe a dozen, 15 different to-do list softwares. So I'm a little bit obsessed with um, finding the best software for me. And I, I kind of did a 180 actually, because I started with Wonderlist as my default to-do list software. And then I tried a million things and then I've gone back to Wonderlist. But I used to just have the one to-do list for work. Like I've got other to-do lists for, for personal and, you know, books to read and things like that. But I used to have the one to-do list for work. And what I noticed, and this is kind of human nature, is that I would just default towards the quick and easy tasks. So I would get this sense of progress hit, but it kind of occurred to me that I, I would have these items on the to-do list that would just stay there for weeks, if not months. And they were the items that were the ones that were going to require time and deep thinking. And and what I realized is that, you know, as, as humans, we just default towards the quick and easy thing so that we get that that dopamine hit, which is which is kind of quite quite addictive. And so when I started separating out what I call my deep work tasks, so things that require focus and no distractions versus my shallow work tasks. Shallow is not quite the right term. That implies that they're not important. They're certainly important, but they just don't require um, sort of decent cognitive powers. Uh, again, that just changes things for me. So, so my morning routine when I start my deep work is to open up my wonder list, deep work list, and I know exactly what I'm meant to be working on. And it's just kind of non-negotiable. So it's like, okay, that's what I'm doing. I don't argue with myself and off I go. It just made things so much easier. Yeah. And we'll talk about a heap of the little tricks and tips that you have from starting the morning because you ask everyone what their morning routine is all the way through to you know, how does their day end, which is a really important thing as well. But you got me to thinking that the app store on Apple or Android, or whatever is like the modern day Kiki K or stationary store <laughs> or office works where you're just looking for that thing that's going to, oh, this is going to revolutionize my life. I need this. Hey, let's go back one, one bit. Can you just tell me and the listeners a little bit about yourself, your background, study and your, your current work? Cause it is quite fascinating really. And we should, yeah, cover that. 
Yeah, sure. So my background since leaving school, I always knew I wanted to be a psychologist. I grew up with a psychologist mother and she's a clinical psychologist and I didn't think I was quite cut out for clinical psychology, which is, you know, working with people who were going through uh, pretty heavy emotional things. I wasn't quite sure how I could emotionally detach myself every night after work, but I discovered this thing called organizational psychology in, in my second year of uh, university study. And that was all about helping people have better lives at work, essentially. How can people be you know, happier, healthier, and more productive during their working hours? And I thought, wow, that seems like a really noble cause, given we, we spend about a third of our waking um, that of our lives really at work. And so I ended up doing my doctorate in organizational psychology. And after that, I, I ended up working in advertising as a consumer psychologist for about five years. I had always been fascinated by why people buy the things that they buy. And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to kind of work on the inside and, and help do that. But then, you know, a few years in, I, sort of I, I felt quite uh, ethically challenged I guess by the work that I was doing where it felt a little bit meaningless like having studied psychology full-time for seven years um, and all I was doing was coming up with strategies to help people buy more chocolate bars and things like that I thought that surely there's got to be something more to it than that like I went into psychology to help people and help people have better lives and so at the time, I, I knew I wanted to leave the industry. I gave my boss three months notice and I said, oh, I'll be out of here in three months. I don't know what I'll be doing, but, you know, you can plan around that. And I interviewed for a bunch of jobs and I couldn't find anywhere where I felt like it was the right cultural fit for me and where I really liked the intellectual property that I'd be working with. And so plan B was start my own consultancy and innovation and creativity had always been a real passion. And at the time, like I... I remained a science geek after leaving university and I'm the kind of person that reads academic journal papers for fun. Um, like that's, that's a, that's a fun weekend. So reading through <laughs> the journal of applied psychology or something like that for me. And I thought, wouldn't it be great to take the latest findings from science and look at how organizations and individuals can become more innovative. And so that became what, for the last 11 or 12 years has been Inventium. So, um, so that's a consultancy that I run where we work generally with larger organizations, helping their people become better innovators. And for the last couple of years, uh, like something I would hear time and time again from clients is we know innovation is important, but we just don't have time to dedicate to innovation. And, and, I, and, and, you know, I was also thinking about my own life at the time where I'd come off a year where I just felt like I hadn't achieved that much and I felt like I'd just developed these really poor working habits and I began to delve more and more into the science of productivity and just general work behaviour and this world of digital distractions that I think most people have found themselves in where um, they're just consumed by you know, almost meaningless chatter in, um, you know, in the digital realm. And I thought there's got to be a better way. And, you know, like you look at all these people that are highly successful innovators and they've got the same number of hours in the day as us. Um, but I had a feeling that they were using their time quite differently. And so that really began a whole lot of exploration into 
firstly, how could I optimize my own work days and achieve more, um, but also trying to, to bring that work to Inventium's clients. And, and then that also uh, led to starting a podcast called How I Work, where I interview some of the world's leading innovators around how they structured their days and what they learned differently so that I could learn and um, so that listeners could learn as well. Yeah, and it's, it's probably no um, mistake that How I Work is one of my favourite podcasts alongside um, Sleep for Performance. So mm-hmm. there's some definite crossover there, although one one would say you're lazy and the other one would say you're proactive, but no, it's, it's sort of they go <laughs> hand in hand. And the podcast... It's an amazing tool. It has some. It's had some incredible guests from. Uh, let me think. Tim Kendall, <laughs> the former president, or is he the president at Pinterest or the former? President? Yeah, former president of Pinterest. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and also there was the there was the Wharton professor as well. His name is yeah, Adam Grant. Yeah, he was amazing. Um, I yeah. should have remembered his name. Sorry, bad research. <laughs> what guest has surprised you the most or given you, you know, the, the, the most surprising revelation about the things that they do, whether that be good or bad? Mm. Ah, it's a good question. Uh, I, yeah, a few things come to mind. Like I, I, I did love speaking to Adam Grant. He's kind of been an academic hero of mine and I feel like I've, I, I've read so much of the, um, the research studies that he's published. Uh, and I think probably something that struck me from that episode, which I've intuitively known, like I, th- I think, you know, people in the productivity space know that it's good to batch things. Like you should batch activities that are, um, that are similar in nature. Like you should batch email reading and, and replying. You should batch meetings. Um, you know, you should batch administrative work because there are efficiencies in batching because your brain isn't kind of switching gears into doing something that's completely unrelated. Uh, but, but something I love from my interview with Adam was I think um, the impact of having a meeting coming up in the diary uh, is that if, if you've got a meeting, like let's just say it's in half an hour or an hour, is that having that meeting in the diary, even though you've still got half an hour or an hour before that meeting starts, actually decreases your productivity by I think it was around 22 just in the lead up to the meeting because you don't really want to deep dive into something. Um, God forbid you get into flow and then you have to get yourself out of flow because of the meeting. And I think just the power of batching meetings is so incredibly important. I feel like meetings just litter so many people's days and such um, such a barrier to good productivity. So I just think that's such an important lesson. Um, and, and so for me, I, I'm pretty strict on, on when I batch my meetings. And I know that if I don't stick to that, my productivity goes downhill because I feel like I'm just killing time until the meeting starts, like in a way. And, and then another one that stands out to me was Rachel Botsman, who she's, um, she's quite a famous thought leader around the, the sharing uh, economy um, or collaborative consumption and also looking at trust and technology. Um, so we, we had a chat about, she obviously does a lot of keynote presentations and I think she's quite well known for um, a couple of her, her TED talks. And she was talking to me about how she thinks about presentations and how she structures presentations. And um, it was like, wonderfully anal how she structures presentations where she will have a whole bunch of different key points or almost like modules that she could cover in a keynote and she files them all in different Dropbox folders and you know they have different stories and different images attached and just this idea of I guess 
having all these different modules for a keynote and kind of building a keynote from all those different modules available. I don't think I'm explaining it very well, but um, it was it was fascinating to hear how someone who is such an accomplished keynote presenter just structures these things behind the scenes and makes it seem so seamless, you know, when you see her present. Yeah, no, I fully, I fully get it. I listened to that, that episode and w- what I took away from that was that she deliberately gathers in huge amounts of information that can then be drawn on from, from all manners of subjects to support other subjects. And I think what's delightful about um, what she was talking about in particular was just the organisation of it, really. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, and it's funny, I probably felt like there was a similar thing coming through just um, a couple of weeks ago. This episode hasn't gone live yet, but I was interviewing Dan Pink, who um, who's written books like When and Drive and A Whole New Mind, and he was talking about how he categorises book ideas where at any given time he's got a whole bunch of different like Dropbox folders on the go of potential book ideas and is constantly adding to to all of them. And when it comes time to decide on a new book idea, you know, he's not starting from scratch. He's kind of reviewing all this groundwork that's been laid, um, you know, at, at various points through the year. Mm. Um, and, you know, and I, I, you know, I definitely think that, in order to get quality ideas, you need quantity, um, a high quantity of ideas. And, and uh, you know, that, that kind of struck me about him where he's kind of, you know, going for the quantity to get to the quality at the end of it. Yeah, 100%. Uh, I would assume that what I'm doing has some sort of scientific backing behind it. I, I, never, I never go and write a fiction book from first chapter to the last chapter and at all. What I do is basically make a roadmap for it where I see the story going and then dependent on the mood I'm in on the day that I have available will then depend on which chapter I write. So if it's, mm-hmm. if, I, if I'm feeling all lovey-dovey, it might be a, you know, a soft scene where two people are connecting in some way. And if I'm feeling, you know, bullish or whatever, it might be a fight scene or, or, or something along those lines. So the creative, I don't try and force being creative, and I, but I do try and have a structure to it. I just come back and forwards to the structure dependent on the psychology of the moment, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I've heard other people say they do things similar, not necessarily with writing fiction, but with other creative pursuits. Mm, yeah, I, th- I think it makes sense. It's kind of good to, I guess, be in touch with like where where your head is kind of naturally leaning and just kind of go with that rather than force it into what might be an unnatural direction based on your state at that moment. Yeah, the editing can be a little bit confronting though. Like a couple of a couple of weeks later, when you go, "Oh, geez, I was in a bad mood when I wrote that," <laughs> can't actually kill it, kill yes. everyone off. We, we touched on it uh, just a little bit before about early birds and, and night owls and the like. And um, how does a person learn that about themselves? I mean, it's it's not enough to say that I would assume at six o'clock in the morning, if you're reaching for the alarm, that you're definitely not an early bird. That's still pretty early. But uh, is there a way that people can learn that about themselves, where they operate best? Yeah, absolutely. So, so to understand what your chronotype is, so so that's um, a chronotype is is basically looking at what's your natural twenty four hour rhythm. You know, are you more suited to, um, you know, uh, morning alertness versus evening alertness versus somewhere in between? There, there are a bunch of different questionnaires that researchers use. One that I like um, is the morningness eveningness questionnaire. That I think if you Google morningness eveningness questionnaire you'll get that and you can self-score and and that will give you an idea of where where you sit in terms of your chronotype and therefore 
when you're going to be suited to doing um, your kind of most heavy lifting kind of work. Yeah. Okay. And so what about the, those people that are in jobs where they, they can't manipulate that? It's, it's a given that they have to be there at that time. In fact, a lot of the people who, you know, yourself, myself, people, people like Tim Ferriss, a lot of the people that they interview, and I include us in that, are already quite either, um, how do I put it, they're either quite successful and therefore can structure their own time because their time is theirs. And therefore the answers that they're giving of what their morning routine look like just won't fit the lay person. So what, what about those people who find themselves in the morning, they have to operate in the morning and, and, and then how do they best get themselves through that period? Does that make sense? There's a lot to unpack does, in that. It does, yeah. Like I, I think it's a really good question. I, I think, you know, let, let, let's let's maybe focus on knowledge workers um, that have a boss. Uh, I think, you know, if, if you're in a shift work kind of position or industry, it's a lot more challenging, but but I would imagine that a lot of your listeners would would be um, knowledge workers in in some way, shape, or form. I think there'd be a pretty broad spectrum of who who listens to this podcast, and you know, a lot of them fly in, fly out miners, for instance, would be would be some of them. There'd be mm. people wanting to join the Australian Defence Force, so they'd be at all level of schooling through the end of high school to university, um, and then there would be those that are in the military, which definitely won't own their own time. Um, yeah, but it's yeah. a, but that's the that's the thing with that's the problem I think with with us looking at oh ways to optimize your life is all it's all well and good but if you're if you're not independently wealthy that optimization you know it comes at a cost um, mm. sometimes that time that, that you're trying to manipulate isn't your time mm. it's tough I know especially especially if you're trying to reach a mar- um, a larger market base it's really hard and and I think like. Sometimes it's simply not possible, but I, I think the best thing that people can do, like if they if they feel like the schedule that is being set by their organisation is counter to their natural body clock, is to have a conversation with their boss or whoever it is that that sets their schedule right now and explain to them about what is a chronotype, what does that mean? Um, you know that, that we're not all hardwired the same in terms of when we're going to do our our best mental work um, and also our best physical work as well. And, you know, I think putting it to to your boss, like having a good conversation with your manager and saying, look, if you want me to perform at my peak, these are the hours that I would be best suited to working. So it's your choice. Like if if you want to just stick with the norms of how organizations operate and how this organization operates or whether you want to offer some flexibility and actually get the best out of me. And, you know, I I think if you have a conversation like that, I mean, you're educating someone else in the world. And I think the more people that know about this stuff, the better, Mm. but you're also improving your chances of, of, of having your schedule change. You know, I, I think if your boss can feel like they are in control of that decision, um, you know, because you are giving them a choice, like, does your boss want you working at your peak or not? Um, you know, ho- hopefully, like, I- I've certainly heard people that have had that conversation, and they have been able to get more flexibility. Um, you know, but equally, I think, you know, more and more organisations are, are, are offering flexibility with working hours. Like, I know, um, at, at Inventium, where um, we've got a team of about 15 people between Melbourne and Sydney, um, like there, there, there are definitely exceptions where let's say people are delivering a workshop to a client and um, that's generally going to be between the hours of nine to five. But when that's not happening, 
like we're incredibly flexible. You know, some people on my team will start work at four or five in the morning um, because they're extreme lax and then they'll, they'll finish by lunchtime. Um, and that's completely fine. Um, and others might, you know, work their day into two chunks, um, uh, you know, depending on when they're most alert. So uh, I, I know for me, like I try to be completely flexible, as flexible as is humanly possible because I want people working at their peak. Like that is stupid as a manager, I think to set like dumb rules around, well, you have to be working between nine to five. Um, you know, if you want to get the best out of people. Yeah. I think that's awesome. I'm definitely a lark. I'm up at, I'm up at four, four thirty. Um, mm. mind you, I'm in bed early. It comes at a price. Yeah. Yeah. That's the other thing. Um, so those knowledge workers, um, how let's reach out to them. So how does a, a knowledge worker, a person who's working the nine to five, you know, for a boss, they might have a, a boss that they're not going to be able to have that conversation with. Um, how can they construct their perfect day? So what would it, what would it look like? Um, and I know you're a big advocate of not having uh, the phone in the bedroom. Um, and, and I've heard a, well, what, what I thought, and I don't think you meant it to be, but it was quite a, 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 um, heartfelt, um, almost emotional email about you talking about mindfulness and how those people then basically, well, ganged up on you is a word I want to use actually. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and how that affected you emotionally throughout the day. And, and we've all been in those positions, whether it's you've had a fight with a loved one or there's, you know, there's stuff going on in your family or you have crap people on Instagram sending you crappy things, you know, and then, and then you, you, you're not in the right headspace to do anything. So I think that that was, that was a, I took that on board and I now don't have the phone in the bedroom either. Um, in mm. fact, I'm going to try and find an alarm clock. You know, those old things that used to tick over the time. Yeah. I've got one of those. <laughs> back, to the, back to the old days. Um, yeah. But so from a, from a time management sort of optimization perspective, what, what does a morning look like for someone in, in that sort of position? Well, like ideally you want to work out whether you're a lark, whether you're a morning person, so to speak, or whether you're an owl um, and an owl's kind of come to life in the evening, um, late afternoon, like that is when they get their, their best thinking work done. And then the rest of us, uh, look, there are all sorts of names for it. Um, one that I quite like is third birds that are sort of somewhere in between. Um, and so statistically speaking, about sort of 17 to 18% of the population alarks, like have a definite preference for morning, about the same amounts, about, you know, 20% of people are owls and then everyone else is somewhere in between. So um, with the exception of owls, we'll, we'll leave them to the side at the moment. Ideally, if you're a lark or a third bird, what you want to do in terms of structuring your day, and let's say you're working a typical nine to five schedule, is you want to have your first few hours of the day, like 9 to 11 or 9 to 12, really dedicated to doing deep focused work, like work that is going to be most cognitively demanding. So, you know, generally work that's going to require, uh, say, analytical um, thinking or kind of, you know, detailed sort of thinking. Um, then uh, after about lunch, sort of in the early afternoon is when we're most foggy. Um, and that's a great time to be working on like, um, you know, what, you know, based on Cal Newport's work is shallow work. So work that is non-cognitively demanding. So that um, is a great time of day to be getting into your inbox, for example, and 
checking email, responding to email. Generally, that's not a particularly cognitively demanding task. You know, you might return phone calls, um, you know, in the sort of after lunch hours. And then, um, and then typically like in the later afternoon, like, you know, let's say between sort of 3 to 5 p.m., most of us experience a bit of a rebound where um, we are, you know, the, our, our, our brain's kind of firing again. But also what we find during those afternoon hours is that our brain is less vigilant. So it's actually a great time to be working on problems that require creative thinking or require us to be generating insights because our minds are a lot looser at that time of day. Um, so that that's a great structure for, for a typical day. Uh, and if you were an owl, then I'd say just flip that around, um, essentially. Like do your deep focus thinking towards the end of the day. Um, middle of the day is still going to be good for shallow work. And then, uh, you know, spending the mornings on, I guess, your um, sort of secondary uh, deep work, if you like. I was going to ask you another question, but I got lost in the answer to that thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, okay. So I, I've heard you, I really like that. And I mean, I think, I think we, we probably know that already intuitively, I would assume, but we get that um, sort of lost in, in, the, in the social media world at the moment and, you know, and being distracted. And I know that there's, a, there's chemical reactions that occur when you, when you look at your phone, the dopamine and, and, and those sort of things, especially if you're someone who's on Instagram looking for, for likes of a photo that you've put on there or something like that. And, and I've heard you talk about people who spend their, their – I'm not sure if any studies have been done, but spend their whole day going back and forward, back and forward, back and forward to the phone and the, the disruption that that causes their deep work. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it, it's bad. And I mean, the way that so. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Social media platforms are designed is that they're designed to be addictive. You know, there there are um, you know hundreds of uh, essentially attention engineers that are there to keep people on the site or on the platform for as long as possible because that is how the platforms make money. The more time you spend on it, the more ads they can place in front of you um, and then the more profitable the business is. Right. Uh, so, I mean, this is the problem when a product is given to us for free. Like if you're not paying for a product, you're not the customer. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Just, you know, a useful yeah. thing to keep in mind, I think. Um, but essentially like the the way that these platforms are designed is, is using very basic behavioral psychology principles where, um, you know, and, and I mean, this is going back many, many decades uh, to, um, to, to B.F. Skinner, who's kind of the king of reinforcement theory, where if we positively reinforce someone for a behavior, they will do that again, um, as Skinner found by giving rats little pellets when they pressed a lever in a box. And then to take that a step further, what Skinner found is when he varied up what he called the um, the reward schedule or the reinforcement schedule to become random. So the rats had no idea 
um, when they would receive the reward, um, they actually hit the lever that would deliver the food more frequently. So if you look, for example, at casinos, at pokey machines, they deliver rewards at, at, at random schedules. Like, you know, you, you might, uh, you know, get three in a row um, on your fifth turn and then on your 23rd turn and then on your, you know, 67th turn. And that's what actually makes them more addictive than if they were to give us a reward every single time we played. Um, and, and that's essentially what's happening with social media and also email. I mean, this is how they're designed. Like we never know when our next like is going to arrive. And then, you know, I, I think platforms like Instagram, for example, and I would imagine that, um, that, that other social networks are the same, they'll sometimes deliberately deliver likes in bursts where you won't get anything for let's say half an hour and then suddenly you'll get 10 or 20 likes all at once. Um, Again, sort of, you know, working on those um, random or intermittent positive reinforcement schedules. Um, That is so deceptive, isn't it? It's pretty scary uh, when you think about it. (laughs) I wonder if they've also... I wonder if they've also studied how long it takes for someone, you know, like you and me to then turn away from those sort of things. If they know they've mm. got a certain amount of time, they've got maybe three years and before you realise that your life's worth more than that screen. Yeah. Like, I look, I think that we're at a really interesting time where obviously, you know, Facebook is, and, and I think, you know, the other platforms are under so much pressure around privacy concerns, but I, I think more and more, um, more and more people are really questioning, is that time well spent that they're on social media platforms? Um, I feel like sort of a revolt is is kind of starting, I think, maybe just at the fringes. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, and I'm, I, for one, am, am moving away from, definitely moved away from Facebook and moving away from, from Instagram to, to advertise the business. I think there's got to be better ways. And I think that perhaps just, giving really good, you know, some, some, some really good customer um, interaction is probably the way to go, um, build that groundswell. Um, I mean, there's obviously a place for it, but I certainly don't want to sit there looking at everyone else making out their lives are perfect on Instagram and then feel like you have to compete with that because it's, that's not what, you know, Warrior You for sure isn't about. Um, mm. Hey, I want, to use your, I want to use your analytical brain to answer some questions on that I think that listeners to this podcast, because it's probably not a genre that you, that you generally would would come across, I guess that sort of warrior you mind, you know, that whole um, mindfulness be better than you were yesterday, that sort of thing is that that sort of culture, and in particular, people looking to join the Australian Defence Force and change their jobs. Actually, one of the things that that I quite often get told is that how difficult it is to make the right decisions. Um, so you've got nutrition decisions, you've got fitness, you know, training decisions, you've got life work balance, all that sort of stuff. And then I heard you talk about decision fatigue and that most people have never learned actually to make the right decisions or to make good decisions, informed decisions. Um, no, no, just decisions actually. Yeah. Um, is there any, any tips that you have that's, that's based on scientific research for, for making better decisions? For sure. So I think understanding decision fatigue is like one of the most important things for people to understand when they're improving their decision making. So essentially what is um, what decision fatigue is all about is that if you imagine 
that your decision-making powers are like a battery in your brain. And assuming you have a good night's sleep, your battery power for making decisions is, is fully charged when you wake up. But with every single decision you make over the course of a day, it eats away at that battery power. And that can be a big decision, like should I accept this job offer through to a small decision? Like what should I eat for breakfast? And what this means is like we're, we're making hundreds if not thousands of big and small decisions every single day. And so by the end of the day, it's like that battery is running on empty. Um, and so the basic tenet of decision fatigue is the more decisions you make over the course of the day, the worse the quality that your decisions become. And the implications of decision fatigue is that you take the easy way out. Um, and so like if we're talking about nutrition, for example, like no one in the history of, of mankind has ever broken a diet at eight o'clock in the morning because our decision-making battery is fully charged. Like it's easy to go for the apple rather than the Mars bar at eight in the morning. But if you contrast that to eight o'clock at night, that's when diets get broken because we're highly decision fatigued. Guilty. Um, yeah. And so, um, you know, same thing with exercise. Like if you're trying to stick to a new exercise regime, for example, I mean, there, there are different benefits to what time of day we exercise depending on what your goals are, um, as I'm sure you would well know. But if you're finding it hard to have the willpower to actually stick to an exercise regime, then the best thing that you can do is do your exercise in the morning when your decision making powers are high um, and your willpower is really high uh, as opposed to trying to do it at the end of the day when decision fatigue is, has fully kicked in. Yeah, I heard somewhere that um, Barack Obama used to wear the same coloured suit and shirt every day because it was just one less decision that he needed to make when running the country. Exactly, yes, and he'd eat the same thing for breakfast as well Yeah, that, for the very um, same reason. Yeah, I mean, it was probably bacon and eggs, so... You know, I mean, who's not going to eat that every day? Yeah, no, so decision fatigue is definitely something I think that a lot of people, yeah, they, they really struggle with and making those right decisions. And, you know, you're walking down the, the you know, you decided you're going to do your food shopping at six o'clock on a Thursday evening with all these crazy people around you and the kids screaming. And, you, and then for some reason you walk down the chocolate aisle and, you know, you're looking at comfort. You're not, you're not looking for nutrition. Um, yes. yeah. And, and I, is, do you think there's, um, there's merit to having, you know, self-talk and, and having, you know, a whiteboard with certain things written on it, you know, to keep you focused and perhaps you look at that each day. I know we're sort of delving into mindfulness now in some ways, I guess. Mm. Look, I, I think, um, like a, a strategy that I was quite intrigued about that, that I read about a few months ago, if we're talking about self-talk is the impact of language. So there was a really interesting study that was done looking at the impact of, uh, of self-talk on um, like forming healthy habits. So in, in one particular study, they, they got a group of people in to do an activity and, and they were each taught a different self-talk strategy. So one, one group was, um, it was all about healthy eating behaviors. And one group was taught to say, I don't eat um, unhealthy food or I don't eat chocolate or something like that. And the other group was taught to say, I can't eat um, unhealthy food. And then after they were taught that strategy, they completed some irrelevant exercise 
And then just as they were about to leave the the lab, they were offered the choice of a snack. So they were offered, uh, I think it was like a chocolate bar uh, versus a, a healthy granola type bar. And what the researchers found is that those that said to themselves in terms of their self-talk strategy, I don't eat uh, like, you know, junk food um, or some variant of, were 50% more likely to select the healthy bar compared to those that said, I can't eat that. So like, it's such a simple change. It's literally one word and it led to a 50% improvement in trying to adopt a more healthy behavior. And what the researchers suggested is, is, you know, what's going on there is saying, I don't do something really makes it feel like very internalized. Like that is part of my self identity. So you kind of feel more committed to that course of behavior as opposed to I can't do something it sounds like you're trying to deprive yourself of um of something that perhaps you want to engage in so I I think that's quite a useful strategy when you're thinking about behavior change and you know and, and trying to um change your behavior in a way that's um you know a really simple strategy to use yeah I love that I like it because if you say um I can't drink alcohol someone can say well well why why not you know, are you on the, the you know, don't drink alcohol for January challenge or whatever it is yeah. or, or, or you're training for something. Whereas I think if you say I don't do that, it puts a, it almost puts a full stop on it as well as reinforcing your own self, um, you know, yeah, opinion of yourself. Or was that what you, something like that? Yeah, yeah. It's it's like you, you internalize that and that's suddenly part mm. of your self-identity. Um, you know, like, like for me in my own life, probably, gosh, almost five years ago now, I... I quit sugar. Like I was highly addicted to sugar, sugary products. And I just decided I had to stop eating it. And the only way to do that was to go cold turkey. Mm. Uh, and, and so now like, you know, if I'm out having dinner with friends, like firstly, everyone knows that I don't eat sugar, but if, if they don't, it's like, you know, it's not about can't, it's like, well, I don't eat sugar. Yeah. I don't do dessert. Um, and it's simple. The decision is made for me. Like I don't have to think about that. You know, I don't have to worry about decision fatigue setting in. Um, so I know for me, like it's a strategy that I personally found very useful. And do you think that that's better for people for their, their New Year's resolutions as well and keeping them on track saying that I don't rather than, than I can't? That's obvious. That's a no-brainer, yeah. I guess. I, absolutely. It's a no-brainer. Yes, yeah. definitely. So I heard you talk about snacking before decisions so yes. now, now we're talking about i don't eat snacks but i should snack before i make any big decisions <laughs> yeah this is true. and i put yeah, on three when, i put when, on when three I, t- I, I put on three kilograms after you told me to snack before all decisions i might add <laughs> but at least your decisions are probably better so um so what that's in relation to and it's so funny whenever i talk about decision fatigue i do quite a lot of keynote speaking and i'll often talk about decision fatigue and then inevitably I'll get a question saying, well, just say you have to make a decision after, after lunch. What do you do? And the, the, what you do is that you take a break and you feed your brain a hit of glucose. Um, so, you know, something carbohydrate-y. And that will, that will actually override decision fatigue. It's kind of like does a reset on your brain. So taking a break and, and having some food. Um, and so that, that is why you would want to have... Um, a, a snack to improve decision making so you know if you have to make decisions after lunch that's how you do it have you read tim ferris's uh four hour work week yes i have yes what did you think of that 
Yeah. Put I you mean, on the spot. I, I loved it. I've read it a couple of times. And I and I think, like, particularly at the time, because, I mean, gosh, that's, like, um, you know, from 10 years ago 10, now. Yeah. Like, the concepts that he talks about, I think, are still considered, you know, um, quite revolutionary to a lot of people now. Um, but they were certainly, you know, really different ways of thinking about things at the time. Is he the godfather of optimization? do you think? Look, I think he's one of. I, you know, I think he's, he's contributed a, a, a lot to the field for, um, for like a, a, a non-academic. Um, obviously, he, you know, kind of experiments on himself. That's his thing. But, yeah, I, I, I am a fan of a lot of his stuff. Yeah, me too. Um, so I have a, um, as you know, I have a special forces background. And one of the things that I really like to do is to add structure to chaos. And I find that a lot of businesses actually are operating in that chaotic environment. They just don't know it. So, for instance, um, you know, if we take a, a mine site, for instance, that mine site has engineers working in isolation on mine plans. It has geologists working on where the where the best samples of you know the gold or the rock rock is. It has a maintenance department that are working on tailoring all the vehicle assets into the three month plan. Then they've got your mining supervisors, your shift supervisors, and your crew. They're all working together but actually they're all working in isolation and when i used my previous experience in special forces to look at this particular problem i realized that what they didn't have was a structure of of how these things all interoperate together and one of the things that when i was listening to podcasts that you did you were talking about gamifying things i'm not really sure how it works or or making things so that they're they're a list of tasks that are easily um achieved and then, so gamifying a problem seems to me to be a really good way to motivate a working group, a big group of people together for, for an outcome that might otherwise be quite, you know, vanilla or boring or just, or just not very exciting. Mm. I think like what, what, what we know from the research in, in terms of how to maximise engagement is it's about breaking things down into smaller steps so that people feel like they're making progress. So one of the reasons, for example, why video games can be so addictive and fulfilling um, is because you're making progress, you know, you're leveling up, you're getting more badges and so forth. But like, uh, you know, research, some of my favorite research comes from Professor Teresa Amabel from, from Harvard Business School. And she talks about the importance of, structuring our goals and I guess our working days so that we can reflect on how and actually make um, progress on meaningful goals. Um, This is not to be confused with progress on non-meaningful things like clearing out our inbox, um, but actually making progress on the projects that matter. So, you know, I think like think for people, you know, if if, if people can be cognizant about you know what are the bigger goals and break those down into smaller goals and then every day reflect on what progress have they made towards one of the smaller or the bigger goals um it it it, um it's been shown to be the most motivating thing in terms of uh driving engagement there's there's a definite thrill you get though when you when you tick off an email like when you get through your inbox and it's empty this is true, and this is the this is like one of the problems why we get stuck in these spirals of doing um, email and and so called shallow work because we're getting that dopamine hit because we're moving through things fast and we're getting like that progress hit, but ultimately 
it's kind of false progress. Like no one got closer to hitting their most meaningful goals through hitting inbox zero more frequently. Like, <laughs> you know, it's a fallacy. Oh, I'd be a champion at that. Mine's always empty. <laughs> um, I really laughed when I sent you, know, you an email saying, hey, I'd love to have you on the podcast. You know, what do you think? And I got an out-of-office return that said, I don't, I don't check my emails before midday. Um, I'm working on yeah. some creative stuff right now. So <laughs> I thought that was brilliant. And it made me reflect on just how available I make myself to so many people and people that perhaps sometimes don't pay it forward or, or give you that sort of um, – they don't give you any – they just take, 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 I think. And, and in a lot of cases – the same with voicemails as well. I found myself listening to voicemails all the time because my life revolves around a lot of a lot of meetings. So I put my phone on onto silent, and then I realised, you know what? If I if they want me, they can send me a message. They can take the time to sit down and send me a message, and then I can decide on what's important and what's not important rather than ask the phone. And in fact, I think Tim Ferriss said he never answers the phone from a number he doesn't know, ever, mm. ever. <laughs> So if you're not on his list of people that he knows, he won't answer that. You can you can either leave a message or send him a message. So I've actually changed my voicemail now to say, send me an SMS or a WhatsApp if it's important. Otherwise, I won't be getting back to you. Oh, that's interesting. I, I, I did exactly the same thing a couple of months ago. Yeah. Um, so I decided I don't check this voicemail message box. Um, mm. You have to text me or email me. Uh, and it's great. It's just like one less thing to do because even though it only takes a few seconds to call your voice mailbox, it's it's a behaviour or an activity that can be eliminated um, and kind of puts the onus back onto the person that's trying to contact you for something. So, yeah, yeah I, I, it's, um, I think it's a really good strategy. People would be well served to spend a Sunday morning going through all their junk email and trash can and going to every single list that they've ever been tricked into subscribing to and unsubscribe. Um, yes. These new laws around um, how how people can advertise and market to you, I think, are brilliant for the individual, so that we can actually get ourselves off these lists now. Um, I only have I have a couple of newsletters that I subscribe to because they they help me make informed decisions for blog content and they're things that I'm genuinely interested in. But um, you know, I, I bought a I bought a, a bike, a brand I won't say on here. I bought a bike years ago, and I still get their newsletter every third or fourth day and it's garbage and it's selling me something and I just don't need it in my life. And it actually makes my blood pressure rise when I see it because <laughs> I can't afford a new bike. And they damn well know that. Um, speaking about spending too much on new bikes, sunk sunk cost fallacy. Tell me about yes. it. Tell me about that. I couldn't, I didn't understand it. I'm sorry. I want to know more. Yeah. So, so sunk cost fallacy, this is um, where like if we spend a lot of time, let's say um, undertaking a project, the, the more time we invest in something, the, the harder it is to kill it. Um, oh. And I, I think like the, it's, not, it's something that I mean, it's, it's rife within so many organisations, like something that we do at Inventium is we will run um, – what are called zombie campaigns where we will encourage our clients to identify zombies. So kind of projects that are going on that are kind of like the living dead, like no one has actually killed them off, but they're sucking a whole lot of time and resources and money from the organization. 
Um, and this is because like when we invest time in something, the more time we invest in something, the harder it is to kill it off. Um, so, you know, really like it takes a lot of discipline to go, okay, what are all the projects that I've got going on in my life or all the commitments and really like go through them and, and look at which ones align with your goals and what are the most important goals and things that you're trying to achieve, you know, in the quarter or the year or, or you know, whatever it is um, and, and killing off and saying no to, to things that don't fall within that. Like easy to say, hard to do. Yeah, right. So if you've spent a lot of money on something and it's just not working, there's, mm. there's the tendency to reinforce failure by continuing to almost invest in that failed project or thing. Yes. Yeah. And exactly. so um, I heard that one way, um, which is good to combat that, is, is through that uh, morning meditation or mindfulness. You, you're more likely to make a decision where the, the sunk cost fallacy is less likely to um, uh, impact your decisions. Yes. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And then, you know, also comes back to decision fatigue and um, willpower being greater um, in the morning than it is in the afternoon or evening. Yeah, that's cool. I've, yeah, I've got a few friends now and one of them's an actor and one of them's a a captain of a sporting team and the two of them um, swear by meditation in the morning. And it's funny to me because I come from a generation and an era and a profession where we don't think about thinking and internal mm. and internalizing things to rem- you know ruminate on them deeply but it, mm. it just makes a lot of sense to me that perhaps that's personal optimization probably revolves around that and i i often wonder i wonder these days if perhaps the secret to life maybe is just self development and that's all there is and everything else is sort of rudimentary and around and and revolves around that mm. That's a fair theory. <laughs> yeah, it's my current one. I'm going to stick with it. So before we wrap up, you know, with regards to the bulk of the people that are listening to this podcast are probably trying to find ways to um, optimize their lives or, or, you know, learn from people in elite, um, from elite backgrounds, elite sporting backgrounds or the military and the like. And, and they're doing that because they, they have a, a mission and their mission might be their mission may be to join special forces or their mission may be to, to get a new job or their mission might be as simple as, well, not simple, but uh, writing a book or something like that. And, and what would you advise people who, who are just starting out on looking at ways to optimise themselves personally other than the things that we've perhaps talked about? Yeah, I, th- I think it comes down to, I mean, like there's so much advice out there, but I think you, you just have to treat yourself as a human guinea pig. Like I, I, I strongly believe in just running experiments on things that you think might make a difference and doing that for a week or a few days and seeing what actually happens. Um, you know, like as, as an example, something I, um, you know, challenge people to do in, in one of the keynotes that I deliver is asking them to delete one app off their phone that's hijacking their attention the most and just delete it for a week, leave it deleted for a week. Anyone can do anything for a week, I believe. And just like a scientist, observe what's happened, observe the difference. And, you know, if your life is better for it, then keep that behaviour going. If your life has fallen apart because you've deleted Facebook off your phone, then by all means, at the end of the week, put it back on your phone. Um, but I, I think, you know, treat your life as an experiment and, and constantly try new things and observe the impact that they have on you. That's awesome. I'm going to reach out on Instagram and ask all the people who follow me 
to join me in deleting Instagram for one week. See what happens. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> so I went onto my phone and I moved everything off the home screen. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, I can see you. You already know what I'm going to say here. Um, I moved everything off the home screen. That took a long time, by the way. That wasn't something that was quick. There needs an app for that. Um, And then on the home screen, all I left on there was my fitness power, which is where I record my food because of my mission this year is to, it's a crazy mission. It's to to be below 10% body fat by the end of the year, which is becoming, the year is already screaming past in my mind. But um, but having having all those apps off that front screen, um, as you quite rightly pointed out, is a is a really powerful thing because I'm no longer um, opening my phone and then the first thing that comes up is an alert from from an email or a text message or something like that, and then you go you you suddenly find yourself going down that you know Alice in Wonderland rabbit hole, you know, of time wasting. <laughs> Yes, I yeah, that's what I do on my phone. In fact, I'll I'll open. Well, that's it up why now. I did it. I'm not um, taking credit for that. It was because I heard that you said that you were going to do it. So yeah, there we go. Oh, that's so cool. Just, just, just got my daughter and um yeah, and just it. in the the bottom toolbar, I just got calendar messages and phone. Yeah, that's all you need. That's all you need. Yeah. I think someone will sell a lot of money if they design a phone that's just a keypad. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's this thing called the Light Phone, um, L-I-G-H-T, that was uh, crowdfunded, I think, possibly on Kickstarter, which is, that's all it is. It's just a phone. I think it might have maps possibly as well. But uh, I ordered one ages ago, but like with anything on Kickstarter, it takes about a year to uh, mm. to get delivered. But, um, yes, I thought that was a very interesting idea. Um, Dr. Imber, I've taken up. Uh, 57 minutes and 30 seconds of your time, which is very <laughs> valuable. Um, I really want to thank you. It's, uh, it's been great to, to actually be able to talk to someone who I listen to all the time on their, on their podcast. And I do, I do think that anyone who listens to the Warrior You podcast, it's, an, it's a natural thing to go across and listen to how I work because there's so many nuggets of information there that, that, it, that would definitely uh, enhance people's ability to be successful in their missions. So, yeah, thanks very much for that. I really enjoyed it. Cool. Thank you for having me. No, thank you. Just when you thought you didn't need another jacket, along comes the Kill Capture Pathfinder jacket. I could bore you with all of the Spec Ops design features, but what you really want to know are the benefits of owning this piece of tough luxury. Well, you'll walk into any room and immediately dominate it. If you're wearing it for business casual, you'll close the deal. Wearing it to a sporting event, and your team's gonna win. It's light, so you can pack more things in your grab bag, and it's tougher than you are too, which let's face it, that's pretty cool, because not much else is. It comes in a military-grade Pelican case and has a tracking beacon included, because your nemesis is gonna try and take it from you, and you'll wanna monitor that. It's a jacket of choice for Mad Dog Mattis, the actor, Dan McPherson, Nick Warner, the former head of ASUS, and I've got one too. Go to the site, www killcapture.com and use the coupon code team australia all capitals you'll love the after sale service the quality and the styling of this limited edition special operator jacket i wear mine with jeans and a t-shirt for the weekend rides on my norton commando occasionally with a dress shirt pants when i go to tequila bars i'll be wearing it to this year's book launch too pick yourself one up today that's www.killcapture.com Dot com. That's capture with a K.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.